This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Villains. Austin Food. The Minnesota Iceman. And a free Texas. Woohoo! Gasoline, hang gliders, marshmallows, spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show. Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school. Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider. Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one. The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose. Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico. And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too. Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.? Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too. Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen. And then the TA picks a winner. And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free. Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts? If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin dash msu. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin dash m like Mike, s like sugar, u like union. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, that's the way to do it. The black and gray dice. The castle towering on the GM's uh, map. The scent of cool ranch Doritos tell us that we've entered <laughs> a remarkably hideous, villainous, even evil version of the gaming hut. Robin, what lurks within the shag-carpeted shadows? Well, first, it's about time that Cool Ranch Doritos started paying us some ad money for all this coverage you're getting on the podcast. So this is our uh, post-Chupacabracon uh, episode. Uh, you may have already heard our live episode from ChupacabraCon in Austin, Texas. Well, we're back from that con, but while we were there, we challenged ourselves to think of a episode in which all four segments would somehow relate to that. So for the first one, I did the easiest thing and have snaffled the topic of a panel that I appeared on and moderated, and since we haven't done it ourselves on Gaming Hut, and have decided to recapitulate it here for you, the listener. So that Topic, of course, as you've already indicated, is villains, and it's something we haven't covered before on the show. So I thought I would uh, ask some of the questions that I asked on that panel and supply uh, perhaps some of the same answers or even different answers 
Only those who are both listening to this podcast and or at the panel will be able to tell the difference. I certainly won't remember. So, Ken, villains, of course, are an essential element of any procedural role-playing game and probably even the dramatic ones. Before we go into the how-tos of how to do a great villain, I thought I'd invite you to uh, describe the uh, villain that you had the most fun running as a GM. Um, let's see, the villain that I've had the most fun running as a GM... Well, right now, in my current... I mean, I, I try to have a lot of fun with whatever I'm doing, because that's kind of the whole point. Right now, uh, because it's a historical game, I'm having a good bit of fun with characters who may or may not be villains, uh, such as Billy the Kid and, and Doc Holliday, who are, who are great fun to play. Um, in terms of sort of guys who were overarching, deep-dyed villains uh, in an ongoing game, I had a good uh, amount of fun with a clan of degenerate deep ones in a uh, Call of Cthulhu game that I ran in uh, 1999 or thereabouts for some of my friends, and uh, they had so much fun that they would kidnap them to get more Deep One accents so that they could interrogate <laughs> them and learn more about the Deep One's machinations. There was a... So what, what is the secret to playing a, a degenerate Deep One that your players will want to kidnap again and again? Well, first of all, it's to get the, uh, the, the, the Deep One accent down so that they are <laughs> talking and revealing horrible truths. But also, the thing is that you have to maintain that, that sort of veneer of alienness. So they can't just be... If, if they're being, you know, uh, uh, threatened with, with death, they, they, they don't, you know, do either plead for their life or defy them. It's simply, you know, um, uh, you, you have to say something creepy on the order of, yes, intersect our lifelines with extinction. That always works well for land creatures, something like that. <laughs> and so it's, um, uh, you, you have to have every interaction with a, a deep one be a deep one-y interaction, ideally, as opposed to just a generic, uh, you'll never stop me, heroes, for I have the power of Cthulhu behind me type. Right, so hence the reference to the uh, undersea versus land dwellers. Exactly. So it's a specific rather than the general. And, and you ideally have to have sort of a, a sense of a broader I ideology or something that they would respond with, as opposed to sort of generic melodrama defiance. So even if, you know, it, it's the absolute cartooniest Nazi what he would respond with is something like, the glory of the, of the Reich will continue, as opposed to, um, uh, you'll never get away with this, or whatever, right? So you have to pull it out into the, the, the world that the villain is representing, so that every interaction of the characters with the villains, even when they theoretically have the whip hand, indicates some villainous, uh, the, the, the nature of the villain and, and how to make that come about. And as you can tell, sometimes that's with ridiculous accents, and sometimes it's ideally with both ridiculous accents and with a larger uh, conception of what the villainous uh, ideology or cosmology is. My favorite villain to play is also from Lovecraft, and that's Nyarlathotep. Mm -hmm. I, I love playing him. I play him as sort of uh, silky smooth and uh, very verbal and very friendly. And he'll come up and he'll give you information you need and he'll offer you things and he'll be very understanding and very sympathetic and very rarely will he in fact do any of the scary things that you expect him to do because of course i'm playing on player expectation that once they know that they're talking to Nyarlathotep, and i don't make that difficult to figure out they are waiting for the other shoe to drop and it's even more disturbing to see that he kind of likes them and uh is uh, trying to help them out because they, of course, know that 
accepting, for example, the big silver gun that he gave to Magritte in the Dreamhounds of Paris test campaign uh, may eventually lead to grief. And indeed, of course, it, <laughs> Go it, it did. Because uh, as we all know, as, as Chekhov said, if Yarlathotep gives you a big silver gun in Act 1, <laughs> you know it's going to happen in Act 3. And it might not shoot only the people you're aiming at, let's just say that. And it might blow everyone it hits completely to pieces, let's also say that. So I, I really enjoy that sort of insinuating uh, villain who makes you nervous by being nice to you. Um, and both of our examples, I think, suggest one of the things about villains is that in order to make a villain truly interesting, you have to find ways to allow the players to interact with that villain ahead of the scene in which they might possibly fight and kill him. Now, with Nyarlathotep, in any system worth its essential salts, uh, you don't actually have the chance to kill him. He doesn't have stats. He's beyond that. But in general, uh, you know, your deep ones, they obviously could have fought and killed, or any other of the villains that we'll mention later in this segment, uh, are there eventually to wind up in combat in most procedural games. But it doesn't have the same emotional resonance if you don't first have an opportunity to interact with them before you start exchanging fire or shooting off your magic explosion bombs or whatever it is. So, Ken, what would you say are key techniques you use to allow the player's uh, verbal interaction with the villains before the throwdown begins? Well, with a lot of villains uh, and a lot, in, in a lot of games that I run, the players meet them on a social level or they meet them in some sort of circumstance when a throwdown is not appropriate. For example, there was an evil rival Mechanomancer for the Mechanomancer in my current game, and they met him sort of while he's building the stage set for a Wagnerian opera, and you can't really start having a fight there. They had to fight during the Wagnerian opera, as I think a, a moment's uh, contemplation would, re would reveal. Um, and so the, 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 they, they're introduced to him. They don't know he's the villain, but the way that he starts uh, acting and the things that they immediately see that he's doing with the with the stage setting and, and other things, they figure out he's a villain, and now their goal is to keep him talking long enough to try and figure out what his plan is before he inevitably has them thrown out of the, the theater. And so their goal is to you know, you try and set it up so that the player's goal is to continue a peaceful interaction as long as they can to get some other goal, to get information or to get um, uh, 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 some other tactical goal to rescue an NPC, some sort of method by which their goal is to prolong an interaction with the villain so that you can then do the real goal of the of the scene, which is to provide insight into the villain's personality, methods, goals, plans, Right. You Magic, have to find where whatever. the MacGuffin is. Right, yeah. And just killing him isn't going to find you the MacGuffin. Right. And uh, I think the master of this is, is Fleming, who always has a reason for uh, for Bond to, you know, he's uh, searching for information uh, from Goldfinger before he actually, you know, ends up in Goldfinger's uh, death trap. And so the, the way to do that now, uh, one of the challenges is that in a lot of games, there are no social constraints or need for evidence uh, on the players, they're you know your roving pack of post-apocalyptic or uh, fantasy world uh, vagabonds with uh, no responsibilities and no need for the law. So in those cases, especially, you uh, want to create um, 
situations that motivate the particularly the player who's most likely to be the guy who's well i just draw my sword and kill him you know target that guy in particular or that gal and uh make sure that they have a good reason not to do that in this situation long enough that they can talk and then uh, get away and have the the big showdown uh, another day once you get into the fight uh ken have you discovered that there are certain types of powers or abilities that uh, make bad guys extra frustrating so that they're more challenging to fight and therefore um, give you more of a kick when you do finally uh, beat them? Um, well, there's the standard power that the villain has, you know, some method of a, an escape hatch ready. He's got his his, wing, his ring of teleportation, or he's got his Byaki, you know, tied up on the roof, or he's Neolothotep um, and can't be harmed by any mortal weapon, or dies and immediately returns to life while his body is still lying there decomposing next to him. Um, you know, there's there's any number of, of sort of get-out-of-jail-free villain cards that you can play, uh, and those work to a bit in a tactical situation, but I think that they're like the the no signal for your cell phone in a horror movie. You can do it once, but if it keeps happening over and over, the players start saying, well, why did we even bring a cell phone, or why are we even right. having a combat if your villain can't be harmed in any way? So, right. and, and it helps if you set that up ahead of time mm-hmm. and say, oh, well, you know, you know that he's been uh that he's acquired this uh, mysterious ring for some reason that's why he killed the guy in the first place that you've mm-hmm. uh, been led to his lair and you don't necessarily know that it's a teleportation ring because then uh if you really want to save him for two fights and have him escape in this one if they know it's a teleportation ring they'll just try and get the ring and right. they'll uh, uh mess up your plans um not necessarily that you should be constructing plans that require your villain to survive multiple encounters because that is uh, pretty railroady. Uh, but if, if there is a good reason to do that in which there are enough options that you're not just railroading the players, you can set it up. And then that way, uh, once they realize that it's feels like less of a cheat, but as you suggest, even so you need to do that very, very sparingly because that's not frustrating in a good way that then allows you the emotional release of taking him down. He, you don't get to take him down. That delays his appearance. Um, other powers that are uh, very uh, frustrating and create that desire are denial powers, for example, so that if you've got the the one big thing that you can uncork and he's immune to that or can cancel it or cause you to fire your uh, fireball at uh, another player, uh, which is doubly annoying, right, because you lose your slot and you hurt one of your own guys. Anything that sort of messes with what the players can do distinguishes a big boss villain in a big climactic fight that's supposed to mean something from your kind of standard run-of-the-mill tough villain. And again, that's something that you, uh, if you do it for every single villain, that's just annoying. But if it's a special thing that their spotlight antagonist does, uh, that I think becomes uh, uh, really rich, provided, of course, that they're, again, that you're not just thwarting the players and they don't have a shot, but that they instead have to reach down lower into their uh, spell kit or uh, bag of laser guns in order to find a different way of taking them on. Yeah, I mean, part of the thing that you can do is when you're painting the original uh, scope of the villain's abilities, if you paint them correctly, uh, the players will then be working on countermeasures or they'll be working on ways to take them down that 
try to avoid their thing. So I had a villain in a Nobilis game who whose ability was basically super scheming. He was like the world's greatest uh, conspirator. He was the last of the Templars, and he'd gotten out of that. And he was all, I mean, that was sort of his, his, his nature and his power, was that he could scheme his way into anything. And he was a great betrayer and ultra-conspirator. He was the, um, uh, the power of secret knowledge. And so he um, had been demoted as a power, but he still had all of his old contacts. And so one of the things that he could always do is you could never put him in prison. He was like Milady in uh, Three Musketeers. You, and you couldn't kill him because he'd been a noble, so you just had to always expect that, yeah, you could defeat him, but eventually he's going to recruit his jailers to his side or use his abilities to bring in other reinforcements and get himself uh, you know, broken out in a prisoner of war exchange or something. And that was kind of a good way because what they had to do is just sort of follow his traces and cut off all of his uh, other social allies before they could finally basically get him into a position where um, one of the, uh, the, as a matter of fact, as, as it turned out, the power of Texas uh, would be able to use uh, such great physical force that he would even, even he who'd made all these bargains uh, with life and death would, would still be killed. And that was, that was a nice superpower because it, trying to block it brought them deeper into the game world as opposed to just say, well, I get a plus four axe. Now, one of the things that you always hear on a panel about villains, whether it's a a writing seminar or a role-playing seminar is that the really interesting villains are tragic in nature and that they have a sympathetic side even though they are doing a really bad thing. So, for example, Doctor Doom in The Fantastic Four is an exemplar of that because his ultimate motivation, as John Wick said in the panel, is to get his mother out of hell and also he has you know, a, a grudge against his old friend Reed Richards, so there's a friendship that's shattered. So even the fact that they were once friends, that he's turned to the dark side, suggests that he has a positive side to him. Uh, is that something that you follow? Do you try to build uh, a sympathetic side into your villains? Um, I, I don't make that a universal, because I think that there's plenty of villains that the effectiveness uh, depends not on their sympathy, but on the fact that they exist and their whole personality seems tuned to villainy. Um, so we don't have a backstory for Moriarty, right? We don't have a backstory for Fu Manchu where it's like, oh, I get it. Um, Moriarty is really mad because his, his dog died. So no, he's the Napoleon of crime and he has a giant lizard head that, that wobbles back and forth on his neck and he wants to beat up Sherlock Holmes. What an awful guy. And so Moriarty is a, is a pure deep dyed villain and Fu Manchu um, at now, we could look at him and say he's sympathetic because he's battling British imperialism. But at the time, when he's being written by a British imperialist, that's the opposite of sympathetic. Uh, so I think pure villainy works perfectly well, especially in a role-playing game that is either uh, deliberately pulpy or melodramatic, or conversely, is um, something of a, a fantasy world or an, a, an exalted sort of a, a world in which um, evil is a real, actual, you know, palpable force, as opposed to in our world, where we merely have to deduce it by its effects on everything else. In a fantasy world, where, yes, there is Satan, or yes, there is Nirlathotep, or yes, there is Asmodeus wandering around, uh, giving all chaotic evil people plus four, um, yeah, there's actually evil there, and pure evil can be interesting to draw, and... You know, people always say, no, I want to know about the sociology of Mordor. No one ever wants to know about the sociology of Mordor. <laughs> or if they do, they want to read uh, uh, fanfic or fan nonfic. 
they don't necessarily want to play a sociology of Mordor game, because that is, I would posit, where things start really getting grotesque, is if, no, here's the game, we're all going to be orcs in Mordor, and we have to sort of work our way up to, to orc leadership while dealing with the fact that there's no crops growing around the Sea of Nernan, or whatever. It's just, that seems I, I would also argue that saying that villains should have a tragic or sympathetic side uh, also fails to correctly portray the reality that we live in. If you think <laughs> of uh, Stalin or Pol Pot or Charles Manson or Ted Bundy, it's very difficult to find anything sympathetic about them. And in fact, real-world uh, psychopaths and tyrants and serial killers are not grand figures that we sort of sympathize with. They are murderous scumbags. Yeah. That does not make them uninteresting to me. But if you uh, you know look at the, the people who are responsible for, to the extent that people are responsible for the murder and horror of our uh, uh, last century or however far you want to go back <laughs> last uh, to the beginning years. of recorded history, um, that those uh, real-life uh, villains are actually weirdly cartoony and one-dimensional. That that's the, you know, Saddam Hussein is uh, a grotesque figure. He would be a caricature um, if it weren't for the fact that he was responsible for so many people being murdered or uh, Muammar Gaddafi. There's something... Uh, essentially absurd about these figures uh, and something uh, disjunctive. But what they almost universally lack is that sense of grandeur or of uh, tragedy because the nature of psychopathy is a uh, inability or perhaps refusal to empathize with others. So uh, I'm not saying you should never have villains that you empathize with. I'm not saying Victor Von Doom is not a good character because he's not enough like real world dictators and tyrants. But I, I do actually take disagree with that idea as, as a universal across the board, just as you do. Yeah. Um, and, and the thing is, if you start reading biographies of real world villains, um, if you look at someone like Otto Skorzeny, who I've actually talked about your historical villain, who's great fun to play because he's an evil Errol Flynn character. Uh, he, he thinks of himself as an, as, as an Errol Flynn swashbuckling hero. And he's a freaking Nazi. He's like the worst, one of the worst people in the world, but his self-image is that of a pulp hero, so he's a great deal of fun to play, uh, and again, certainly in a game where you're a little louder or a little more colorful than life, but if you read his actual biography, he's, you know, there's nothing interesting about him, there's no secret uh, shame or anything else, he's just, the more you read about him, all you know is there's more stuff that he got up to, and... He adds new flaws that you didn't know. Like I think we've talked previously about his um, uh, his gift for self flattery and exaggeration of his exploits. And so now that I know more about him, it's like well now he's a little less fun to play because if I want to play a historical Scorzani, he's a blustering liar, which is less fun than an Errol Flynn uh, villain. And so uh, there's something very small about these people, and yeah. that's why they're trying to rack up such a giant body count. Yeah, I mean uh, there is literally nothing interesting. About about Himmler, except his crazy beliefs and his mass murdering. He is a, he, he is a null person. He is, you know, you, he would have two Twitter followers in the real world and they would both be from, you know, chicken raising, uh, uh, boards and they'd be following automatically. They're, they're, they're just like little empty 
crummy people, or, like Saddam Hussein, they're sort of cartoonishly ridiculous thugs out of some sort of, you know, um, uh, bad 80s uh, gangster film. Uh, well, I think we've uh, well handled uh, uh, villains and can now uh, move on to a much more delectable Austin-related topic. This podcast is also brought to you by Destiny Quest Infinite. You have no memory of your past. Armed with nothing but your sword and a backpack, you enter a land of monsters, powerful forces, and shadowy secrets. Prepare yourself for an adventure like no other. An interactive fantasy game book that mixes the divergent storytelling of choose-your-own-adventures with the action of Dungeons & Dragons-style RPGs. Venture into the land of Destiny Quest Infinite, a game that's also a book. Explore Michael Ward's gamebook, Legion of Shadow. It bursts with 600 pages of fantasy story and 900 text entries. Hundreds of weapons, armor, and items to equip against the battles and challenges before you. You choose where the story goes next. Uncover your past, discover your destiny. Check out the licensed computer version from Adventure Cow. It features new illustrations. Ambient sound effects. A complete inventory system with 600 plus items to collect. Ingredients to gather to upgrade your equipment. An interactive combat system that automates fighting while remaining true to the book. Dozens of quests to complete. 20 or more hours of adventure. Check out the free demo or purchase at dqinfinite.com. The smell of meat smoking in the distance, the sound of a leftover rib being not so carefully wrapped in tinfoil after being slathered in barbecue sauce, suggests that we've once more entered a particularly uh, Texan installment of the Food Hut, in which we are going to uh, look at the uh, various food topics and foods that we encountered and or ingested uh, during our trip. Uh, and as you might guess from that introduction, uh, we availed ourselves of the opportunity to uh, eat the things that one should eat when one is in Texas, uh, starting with barbecue. And so we went to the Salt Lick in Driftwood, Texas, which is a uh, small sort of uh, country town or village or uh, what have you, about a 20-minute uh, drive from Austin. And my, we were delighted, weren't we? Yes, yes. The um, uh, the <laughs> the Salt Lick is uh, pretty much everything that you've um, heard that it is. Uh, it is, I don't know. And if you it, haven't heard what it is, what is it? What is it? It is a, uh, it is a old-style barbecue joint that has sort of expanded out um, uh, topsy style over the surrounding um, uh, Texas hills. And so there are sort of a number of enormous open plan dining rooms that sort of extend off the uh, central grill pit. And it is a Texas barbecue, so which means it has a big, uh, deep grill pit where the, 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 the meat is cooked low and slow over uh, an indirect heat for uh, generally six to 24 hours and then taken out. And you can look at the, at the degree to which a, a sort of a bright carbonized pink color has entered into the meat as the depth to which the, um, uh, the, the, the carbonizing action of the, of the, of the smoke has entered the meat. And of course at the, uh, Salt Lake, the barbecue is pretty much, <laughs> it, it's not throughout because that's not the way you do it, but the, but the meat has, has basically lost its, 
it, it's collagens and it's, it's an internal sinews. And so the result is basically fall off the fork, melt in your mouth, delicious Texas beef or if you must pork barbecue. And because it's, uh, it's, it's in the hill country, which was German settlement. That's also one of the few places you can get a barbecue hot link. That's actually worth anything. If you get, Deep South uh, hot links, they're usually not that great. But if you get them in Texas or any other place with a large German settlement, um, then, yeah, the hot links become super grand. Uh, so, of course, we availed ourselves of the uh, sort of combo platter. Um, they also have uh, chicken and even turkey. And uh, uh, I think there was like the very best brisket that I've ever had anywhere in any context. Yeah, that will um, happen at, in, in Texas a lot. <laughs> and uh, there are the uh, two kinds of uh, American barbecue. There's the Texas style, and there's the St. Louis style. And the Texas style is that the meat is unadorned while uh, smoking, and then you uh, put the barbecue sauce on it yourself uh, when it arrives on your plate. And you may have your choice of uh, a uh, non-spicy or a slightly uh, sweeter and slightly spicier so sauce at the salt lick and of course every uh barbecue place there has their own secret formula for the barbecue sauce which you can usually buy and mm -hmm. take home uh with you uh, now i kind of like the uh kind with the glaze sort of cooked into it but uh this was amazing as well do you have a preference as to the two barbecue schools you're from oklahoma so i bet it's the texas one i'm from oklahoma and so i grew up not just with Texas barbecue, but not, uh, but the the barbecue we're talking about is um, uh, Central Texas barbecue. There is a there's also East Texas barbecue, which is basically like um, uh, the Mississippi Delta type, type barbecue, more similar to uh, Memphis or or or, or places like that, um, Alabama. But there's also a uh, West Texas and kind of North Texas barbecue, which is all of that but with no sauce. So it's just the dry rub onto the um, uh, onto the slow cooked beef or onto the indirect heat. And so you wind up with only the dry rub and no sauce or the sauce is, is really optional. Um, there's a, there's a, a slogan that I read somewhere that is uh, great sauce is just an excuse for bad meat, um, which is sort of the, 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 um, the, the further West Texas attitude towards it. And that's how I grew up with, with barbecue was, was with no sauce. Although we also had Kansas city style barbecue in Oklahoma. So I had sort of both back and forth, but I grew up with, with no sauce. And so when I went to Austin, I made the mistake in the first bite of barbecue that I had at style switch, which is another great barbecue place in Austin of eating a, a bite of beef chuck rib with no sauce on it. And I thought, well, this is good, but surely I am missing a point. And uh, my friend Lenny, our friend Lenny Balsera, a uh, beloved uh, uh, co-designer of Fate and Steve Jackson Games uh, epic employee uh, currently, uh, said, no, Ken, you have to put sauce on it. And the sauce in Austin, because, again, it's that German influence, is a more vinegary sauce. It's similar. It's more similar to Carolina than to um, uh, Central uh, South Southern Barbecue. And so the sauce on the beef chuck ribs was literally perfect. It was like bacon and eggs level perfect, or peanut butter and jelly. It was two flavors that absolutely overlapped, created a seamless flavor tapestry and also as it happened um really kicked the meat up a notch so i i think that the sauce in in a in in austin barbecue is more crucial than than it might be but because it's still texas it's still optional and also crucial are these sides that shows you what the uh the true metal of a barbecue joint is and the sides of the salt lick uh were uh really great as well so um often you just sort of get a 
a mushy plate of, uh, of beans, and their uh, beans were great, but also the coleslaw had a bit of an interesting uh, twist to it, and my Uber driver explained to me what that was, or one of our Uber drivers, uh, and that there, uh, did you notice the uh, Chinese influence in the coleslaw, Ken? Was it the uh, little chow mein noodles? Um, there was a, there's a bit of sesame oil in there. Sesame oil. Apparently the uh, wife and the original couple that founded the Salt Lake was uh, of Chinese extraction. So yeah, yeah. Little... If, you, if you looked at the menu, you saw pictures of them. Yeah. Um, and uh, also their potato salad is uh, in, really interesting and great as well. And it has sort of a, almost it's like a, a potato salad made out of home fries, which mm-hmm. is uh, really great as well. Yeah, it's not, um, uh, it, it's not, you'd think it would be standard German potato salad, which is itself great, but it's, um, at the, at the Salt Lake, it's more of a potato compote, I guess, that you eat and it tastes like potato salad. So, of course, another thing that, uh, typifies Austin is the Tex-Mex style cuisine. We had some of that as well. I, uh, had more Quazo there than I will probably have for the rest of the year. Uh, and one observation I would make about this is... Or queso, uh, even. Queso, even. <laughs> yes. Uh, Yes, my, my Spanish pronunciation is even worse than my French pronunciation. Um, is there uh, any big observation you uh, want to lay on us about Tex-Mex? Well, I'm a, I'm a giant fan of Tex-Mex. I like authentic Mexican cuisine as well. And But growing up in Oklahoma, as you intuit, I ate a ton of Tex-Mex food. And Tex-Mex done right is its own... I, I, I don't know if, if you want to say that it's its own style of Mexican food or its own you know, independent style of cuisine, but whatever it is, just because it's relatively recent, uh, you know, starting in, say, the 1880s, 1870s, it doesn't have uh, maybe some of the, the, the depth of historical character that the mole of Puebla does, going back to frickin' 16-something. But on the other hand, it's been cooked by an awful lot of people who are in an awful lot of competition to get people to come to their uh, fajita place or their burrito place, and the result has been, I think, some pretty terrific evolutions, not just on the sort of popular level, but even on the more high art level. Although, as far as I'm concerned, if you go to a place like Trudy's or Chewy's in Austin, you're eating high art regardless of the fact that uh, it's a, also a, a popular joint with big tubs of melted cheese on the table for you to dip the homemade tortilla chips in. Yes, I had the quail at Trudy's. I don't often expect to see quail on a uh, Tex-Mex uh, menu. Quail's big in, in Texas, though. I've, uh, quail is one of the only two things I've ever gone hunting for. Um, uh, and that's because it's it's big in that neck of the woods. Well, and that's one of the challenges of Texas cuisine is that there are a lot of... Th- if you want to be a, a locavore, there's lots of stuff that uh, doesn't grow there, particularly plant-wise. You're kind of restricted to uh, root vegetables. <laughs> so it's uh, no surprise that a uh, neighboring cuisine was imported wholesale and, and adopted and, and uh, put into service. Otherwise, we would have been going down there and getting a turnip mash. Yes. Yes. Well, this is this is why we should all be glad that the British didn't colonize Texas. That it <laughs> that it was uh, Mexicans and then Americans, um, uh, and then the two of them working hand in hand against both. Uh, I read somewhere that uh, cumin, is, which one expects to to taste in most Mexican food in America, is actually a Tex-Mex innovation because it comes from the Canary Islands. And I think you and I were were reading in the Texas History Museum about the Canary Islanders who basically moved to uh, Texas early on in the 1700s as sort of a, 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 an attempt by the French government or French government, the Spanish government to bolster the population of their strategically crucial but hot and uninviting colony. <laughs> yes. And the, the biggest impact of Tex-Mex on Austin is that it's changed breakfast. 
my niece who lives in Austin, it's it's a day without sunshine if there's not a breakfast taco at the beginning of it. Yeah. My my friends, uh, Micah and Laura, were uh, excited to discover that they had crayfish migas tacos. Um, and migas is a Tex-Mex type of scrambled eggs that often has... Uh, stuff in it, like an omelet, but it's scrambled instead of omeleted. And the sort of the one of the markers for Migas is that it will often have broken up tortilla chips in it, and that will give you your um, your your all valuable starch instead of having to eat a waffle or something. And speaking about uh, food that is prepared within uh, fresh distance of the restaurant, we come to a, a restaurant that is uh, relatively new to Austin, but is a, a delight to you and something you wanted to talk about, which is. Uh, in and out Burger. Uh, so for the uninitiated, uh, this is a uh, fast food chain, but it's an, unlike uh, other fast food chains, uh, only expands in a particular geographical area. Could you explain that? in and out Burgers is the greatest fast food hamburger in America, and therefore the world, and therefore the universe. They began in California, and for a long old time, their policy was they would never build a restaurant that was more than a day's drive from their central uh, farm in Baldwin Park, California. And they had um, uh, that all of their, 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 their meat was ranched there. All of their vegetables were grown there. They basically had a total vertical integration. And so if it took more than a day to drive the vegetables from their vegetable farm, then they couldn't guarantee that the vegetables would be fresh, and they knew that the restaurant would be bad. And so... They didn't open a restaurant there. They don't franchise. Everything is owned by the In-N-Out company. And they don't ever open a restaurant that uh, they have to borrow money to open. So once They open a, it on cash They open reserve. it on cash reserves. So every In-N-Out is, when it opens, it can pay for itself for five years uh, before it, uh, it, even in theory, if no one came and, and ordered a hamburger. And the beautiful great news is that they have very recently added a second ranch in Texas, uh, in Dallas, Texas, or the Dallas area. And so, therefore, there is now a whole new part of the country that is perhaps within an hour's drive of Texas, uh, a day's drive of Texas. And, and so, could that include Chicago? Oh, I have driven to Texas in a day. I don't know if the in and out people can drive uh, to Chicago in a day, but it will it will definitely include Oklahoma. So if my mom is listening, she will uh, do a little fist pump and say, yes, another reason for Ken to come back and visit. So I am I'm very excited at the new growth of In-N-Out. It used to be that uh, Las Vegas was as far, was as close as I, as I had an In-N-Out to me. And now the possibility of, of, of uh, the, the existence of In-N-Outs in Dallas and Austin, the possibility of In-N-Outs in Oklahoma and maybe even Missouri, uh, and oh, could it be Illinois? Um, I'm I, I couldn't be more thrilled. So I'm very excited by the growth of In and Out. But the bottom line, Robin, and you coming to it as you did as a as a as an Outlander, a man who perhaps does not have the American uh, bread love of fast food hamburgers. Why don't you describe what an In and Out burger is? And am I right? Right. So basically, if you're going to envision the McDonald's super flat patty on a bun hamburger done with fresh ingredients and done well, as opposed to doing in the mass-manufactured style uh, of McDonald's or its competitors, that's what an In-N-Out burger is. So it's not one of those ones that's like a giant patty of all pure beef. Um, and also their uh, potatoes are, again, sort of like uh, if the McDonald's-style fry was done well. So they're sort of a shoestring style, and you can see that they're, that you can taste that they're fresh potatoes and they weren't frozen, and you can see the 
uh, little bits of skin on some of them. Um, now, to my mind, the question is, and this is, uh, I guess, a question of, of deep uh, epistemological uh, freight, is when you say it is the best fast food hamburger, uh, what is your definition of fast food? Does it have to be a McDonald's-style restaurant, or does uh, just a chain where you go into the counter and you order something and you sit down, is that also included in the in the uh, equation, I would say anything with more than one uh, more than one outlet is is. I mean, so if you're just your individual um, uh, roadside diner is not a fast food. Even if you go up to the counter, order a hamburger, and someone brings it to you, or you go up and get it from the short order cook, like you would at a at an In and Out. Um, I don't think that that's fast food. Fast food implies a degree of of um, standardization across a number of, of of locations. That's sort of the definition of it. But nor is it a um, anywhere you could get, uh, your burger, your burger cooked to order, I think by definition is now no longer fast food. So although Burger King will have it your way, they won't cook the burger rare. They'll just, you know, put ketchup on it or not on it. Um, obviously in and out will do the same thing. So, so, uh, being able to, uh, order it well done or, or medium disqualifies it as a fast food restaurant. I would I would say that would be sort of your your philosophical uh, divergence. Although I should say that In-N-Out has a special secret menu of ways you can order your burger differently from normal, but they are not whether or not it's going to be rare, it's how it, is it going to be served in a lettuce wrap or is it going to be cooked animal style, which is to say in mustard, which is absolutely the the way to do it. And and I think that they also have an off-menu grilled cheese sandwich, if that's what you want, which is basically a burger with no meat on it. Um, <laughs> but uh, the uh, but but that's not off-menu. That's just sort of secret menu. And if you have to sort of um, decide whether or not you want your burger uh, uh, medium rare or rare or wrong, then that's you you've now moved outside the the world of fast food, I think, and into um, maybe pub food or something. Because I was thinking that although I like that burger perfectly well and uh, it was a good fresh version of the McDonald's thing, that actually there's you know a number of chains here in Toronto that I would pick over and in and out, and uh, you know the more of the genre of the big pure beef patty. And although I suppose I could maybe ask them to cook it a different way, they don't ask, and I get the burger the way they cooked it. So mm -hmm. I, I don't know whether. Uh, I guess it's a definitional issue of whether this is actually the best fast food burger I've ever had. But uh, it was good, and uh, if you've not experienced uh, In-N-Out, it's an example of a, a restaurant that has this sort of cool culture within the corporate chain framework that's definitely uh, worth picking up. And just the fact that it has this mythology of different uh, secret orders that you can place is, uh, is sort of a, a fun element. So it's definitely something that you should go to once, even if it's not going to replace the fast food hamburger of your dreams. In, in response, I can only say that uh, we will have to see whether or not your individual uh, Canadian locations are actually fast food or not. But there are a number of places in Chicago, for example, there's a place called M Burgers that has attempted to clone the In-N-Out, and it works about as well as you'd expect. Uh, they, they still have fresh ingredients, so it's better than, say, a, um, uh, a McDonald's burger, but it's not in and out, and maybe it's just because they don't have Bible verses hidden on your French fry wrapper, but it's just wrong. Right, and and, if, and as I said, if the genre is like McDonald's but good, mm -hmm. uh, in and out clearly wins. All right.
Robin, I know what you've been saying. You'd love to invite ghouls into your game, but what about the expense? It's true, Ken. There's nothing I'd love better than having gibbering, corpse-eating, dog-headed monsters with me at all times, but I have to watch my dollars. Well, now you can have both. Horrific graveyard entities and your dollars. Because the KWAS single, Hideous Creatures Ghouls, is free for a limited time. What? That means... I can bring all kinds of horrid ghouls with wildly dangerous and unpredictable powers and statistics into my living room. That's right, Robin. Like all the hideous creatures issues, ghouls gives you lots of new ways to change familiar monsters into something even worse to keep your players on their toes and on the run. And their characters too, right? Um, sure. It's also got rules for ghoul changelings and becoming a ghoul, and ghoulish clues for every ability in Trail of Cthulhu, as well as legendary ghouls, contradictory ghoul truths, and tasty gobbits of scenario. Well, when Ken writes about stuff, you know it's going to be legendary, contradictory, and gobbit rich. And now, it's free, just lying around like an unburied body waiting for you to devour it. In a gaming sense, that is. Um, sure. Follow the filthy splayed footprints or the link in the show notes, to all the ghouls you could ever wish for. And more! That's Hideous Creatures Ghouls, a free k single from Pelgrain Press. There's a peculiar chill in the air of the Elliptony Hut as we enter to see the chest-high freezer uh, thrumming along, uh, Walter Mondale campaign posters inexplicably festoon the walls. The Elliptony Hut is even for the Elliptony Hut a little strange. The alien big cat is apparently somewhere else, perhaps lying down on the heating vent uh, to avoid freezing himself to death because the denizen of the Elliptony Hut today is the mysterious, not to say dubious, Minnesota Iceman. So this was a big surprise, uh, something I... I uh, had uh, heard of as part of a Liptonic lore and in no way expected to bump into uh, <laughs> on the streets of Austin. We briefly uh, poked along the kind of main tourist drag of, of Austin where the uh, not very good uh, bands play in the bars that the tourists get confused into going into instead of the actual great live music venues that they are expecting. Um, but along there is a, a gift shop slash dime museum called the museum of the weird and uh we uh, poked in there before heading to the alamo draft house for inherent vice and uh we discovered that yes there was a, an exhibit of that we could check out and uh the uh, beginning of the exhibit uh, is basically a little uh, potted history of the kind of the old-fashioned uh, dime museum where you see uh you know you have the shrunken heads and the fiji mermaids and uh, a, a skeleton that was uh uh, rescued from a, an old house and was once uh, the property of a uh, men's lodge, one of the ones that has the ceremony where you have to, you, they throw you in the closet to initiate you and there's a skeleton and, ooh, and uh, apparently this is your uh, a haunted skeleton who interferes with the electrical of the Museum of the Weird. But then uh, the big highlight of the exhibit is the Minnesota Iceman, which as you suggested is this big slab style freezer mostly encrusted in ice and it contains uh, a purported anthropoid uh, that was originally exhibited by a, a longtime uh, carny named uh, Frank Hansen and back in the 50s and 60s he would uh, take this around and for 25 cents you could go into his trailer and look at the Minnesota Iceman and uh, in fact this winds up in Bigfoot and Sasquatch lore because uh, two noted 
cryptozoologists uh, kind of briefly fell for it. Mm -hmm. Bernard uh, Huvelmans, who's sort of one of the more sciencey cryptozoological guys, uh, examined it and uh, even went so far as to uh, give it a scientific name of Homo, Homo pongoides. And then uh, Ivan Sanderson uh, was the science editor of a sort of a magazine, an uh, old-timey elliptinist Nobel called Argosy, uh, wrote it up as possibly a real, actual, bona fide Bigfoot. Yes, and um, uh, he also invited uh, the Smithsonian to look into it, and that's when uh, the uh, guy who owned the Iceman, Frank Hansen, uh, stopped cooperating with people who wanted to touch his Iceman because he felt that the Smithsonian guy coming around might cause him problems. Although, interestingly enough, once Hovelmans had given it uh, the Homo pongoides, people began to say, well, if it's a people and it's got a gunshot wound, maybe it was a murder victim and maybe the FBI should come touch your ice man. And so he was probably, um, even the, the sort of the, the, the patter given us by the uh, delightful hipstery uh, uh, docent there at the Museum of the Weird uh, implied very much that Hansen was sort of playing both sides against the middle and said that the Iceman was a fake when he wanted to say it was a fake and said it was a real thing when he wanted to say it was a real thing. So it has that nice elliptonic, self-contradictory quality to it. Yes, although some, some carnival patter may not be strictly accurate. Some carnival patter may not be the, accurate. The, the other story is that uh, some kind soul uh, was concerned that possibly this was someone who had been murdered and uh, put in ice and uh, the FBI should look into it. And according to that story, um, Herbert Hoover, who at that point in '67 uh, would have been more occupied with what Martin Luther King was up to, mm -hmm. uh, said, well, if it's not human, it's not a murder case, and it's not up to the F FBI. So uh, part of this whole idea of the uh, Hansen having to flee from uh, scrutiny uh, may be as uh, much part of the fun story as, right. it, as of uh, reality. And uh, we got a, a perhaps even rarer opportunity because, uh, as we're informed, they'd recent uh, periodically they have to let the Iceman thaw out a little bit because uh, over time, uh, like your um, container of Häagen Dazs in the fridge, it becomes uh, too ice encrusted, and they have to let it, it die down yeah. a bit. And so we got uh, more of a view of the Minnesota Iceman than uh, one uh, might normally get. And uh, let's just say that his. Uh, status as a manufactured object was perhaps more apparent than it usually is. Mm -hmm. But it was a delightful manufactured object, and yes. the manufacturing of the legend of the manufactured object is itself a manufactured object, which is one of the reasons to like things like the Minnesota Iceman, because the degree of, of interleaved uh, story elements going down to the bottom of it. Uh, uh, for example, uh, Heuvelmans, when he's trying to explain what a Minnesota Iceman uh, Homo Pongoides is doing with a bullet hole in it, he thought that it had been shot in the Vietnam War, and then they found the body, and then they smuggled it to America to become a circus exhibit. The, Whereas, the role of the Sasquatch troops in the Vietnam War has been undersung. It has been undersung. And also, uh, many Sasquatch are still uh, you know, prisoners in those jungles, I believe. Um, so the, although not of the Vietnamese, they're just prisoners of their own low self-esteem. The uh, but the guy, the, the, the docent guy, said that it was possibly Chinese fishermen uh, who found him floating in the ice in the Arctic and then took him to Hong Kong to sell to a dubious uh, elliptony dealer in Hong Kong. And there That's are all elliptony dealers any number of 
odd parts of that story, but uh, I'm I'm uh, I like both of those stories, and I want them both to be true. I want there to be Sasquatch being shot in Vietnam, and I want there to be dubious elliptony dealers in Hong Kong who trade with possibly communist fishermen in the fifties. Uh, there's no part of the Iceman story. I, I want the FBI to have been trying to steal the Iceman for the Smithsonian, and Walter Mondale to have to bravely intervene and say, you touch that Iceman at your peril, for this man is a constituent. <laughs> I want yeah. all of this to be true. Yes, and, and there's even more origin stories. So there, there's the origin story that he was found in Siberia, mm-hmm. and uh, even better, that, that he was actually found in uh, Minnesota, uh, and was menacing either Frank Hansen or a uh, a woman uh, who was headed through the woods. And in uh, mm-hmm. either of these stories, uh, the shot to the eye comes from either Hansen himself or uh, this uh, other woman who uh, discovered the Iceman and uh, laid him low. So there's uh, all manner of different uh, origin stories. And I even love uh, the detail that this uh, sort of classic artifact of American carny culture uh, came to the Museum of the Weird via eBay. Yeah. The, they have the, a number of uh, <laughs> sideshow performers who in an earlier era would have been called freaks, and one of them was uh, cruising eBay late one night and saw that the Minnesota Iceman was for sale, and uh, so the uh, owner of the museum uh, snapped it up, and it's, it's great to know that it's uh, uh, found the right home to display it. Yeah, the um, uh, I, certainly the Minnesota Iceman is in the right home. Um, I, I don't think that anyone thinks that if you've got a Minnesota Iceman, he should be in Minnesota of all places. He should be in Austin, Texas, with all of the other hairy weirdos. He should be in a dime museum. <laughs> he should be in a dime museum. And if Boston, and if Minnesota wants to have a dime museum, then they can talk. Yeah, I, th- I, I think the whole Museum of the Weird was, was great fun because it was attempting to sort of build that dime museum feel. And they had a Fiji mermaid and they had um, uh, a three-headed... And what is a Fiji uh, mermaid for a Fiji mermaid is a humanoid, uh, usually it's made with a, a mummified monkey and a mummified uh, large fish of some kind, or, or a dolphin or something. Or sometimes they actually just put fake uh, fins on the monkey, which I think is kind of cheating the, the, the Fiji mermaid. But it's, a, it's hardly a hybrid. No, yeah, I think that it, you just get two corpses, people. Do, do, the, do the work. Um, but, but, you know, to see a Fiji mermaid is great fun. So even though it's not an um, actual mermaid, it's an actual Fiji mermaid, and that was that was fun in and of itself. Whether it was made by some guy in Austin ten years ago, or was made by uh, someone in the great age of dime museums in the in the in the thirties or forties, it, it did it, have to seem to have that vintage uh, air to it. Well, that's that I think is, is one of the neat things because once you start down that road, you think, okay, if it's made now, that means that there is a sub community of people who forge Fiji mermaids. And that means that there is a really good Fiji mermaid forger. And if there's that guy, what happens when he, A, dies, B, finds a real Fiji mermaid? I mean, there's, um, you know, tells the secret of making a good Fiji mermaid to someone and then dies. What's, I mean, there's so much possibility just in this weird little outre subculture. But in another way, if no one is making Fiji mermaids now and they keep turning up on eBay or being found in attics, that's almost as cool because that implies that there's like a ring of people who traffic in antique Fiji mermaids and people who can do Fiji mermaid provenance and say, ah, yes, that's a, that's a Giles Sutler Fiji mermaid. That's one of the best <laughs> ones. And, and so the whole notion that you can have this connoisseur culture. A top draw Fiji mermaid. a top man. draw Fiji mermaid, I tell you. You'll get, to, you'll get top dollar for that one. Um, the, the, the notion that there is a, a connoisseur culture in Fiji mermaiding, whether it be current or antiquarian or both. I mean, first of all, there, there's a million stories that could just happen in that culture with nothing 
extra normal about it at all. But obviously, what happens is someone finds a deep one. Someone finds, you know, one of the Fiji mermaids starts talking. You sort of do a crossover of the circus of Dr. Lau. There's a million possibilities, and they're all tied up in just having a Fiji mermaid that, as you say, has the patina of, of well-displayed travel about it. Right, because even though it starts out as a fake, if people have been gazing at it in a dime museum for 80 years, it's accumulated all of this trickster magic. So now it has become a, a locus of uh, trickster magic. And if you are a trickster in a modern urban uh, fantasy uh, campaign, you want to get the... Uh, highest quality Fiji mermaid that has had the most eyeballs on it and was made by the uh, best maker of uh, Fiji mermaids. And you can uh, start to follow that through. And uh, perhaps if your uh, trickster magic is sufficiently high, you will start to bring Fiji mermaids into existence. And uh, what happens then? Yeah, and there is and there is a real uh, Japanese tradition of building mermaids um, that is not usually done to sell to American carnies, but is Often done as sort of a, uh, a sort of I, I guess sort of a meditation on on the on the real and the unreal. But there's but but there's like a little um, uh, temple somewhere in Japan where that's what they do is they they build mermaids and so you walk in and suddenly you're surrounded and they usually paint them bright pink for some odd reason and so you walk in and you're surrounded by these bright pink preserved mermaids which is awesome in a lot of ways and is also more than a little terrifying, as with many things that people do. It could also be uh, the magic fetish that gives you uh, powers to be an amphibian. Mm -hmm. Or it could uh, give you secrets from the deep, like uh, where the sunken wrecks are. And so if you're going to go find the, the lost Spanish galleon or something, you have to have a Fiji mermaid along to whisper the, 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 the locations to you, like sort of some sort of magical sonar. And this also leads us to envision uh, someone who has a, a, a trailer, and their own version of the Minnesota Iceman, and uh, that might uh, also be uh, sort of a locus of uh, trickster or illusion magic or uh, sort of uh, bring out the best Jill in a community. So you could have a horror scenario where, uh, particularly in the Esoterrors, where uh, belief becomes magical action, uh, particularly if you've got a lot of kids who are terrified of the uh, Minnesota Iceman, perhaps in an earlier, more naive era, uh, their terror can uh, bring a, a monstrous ape man into existence, and then you, uh, your task as uh, occult investigators is, uh, you know, exposing this as a uh, man made of latex uh, stuck in a freezer is the easy part. But how do you put down the Minnesota Iceman tulpas who are now roaming the community, uh, uh, killing people in a particularly lyrical Ray Bradbury sort of fashion? And uh, shooting them in the eye is not necessarily going to do it, because uh, that, that's been done. That you may need to shoot them in the eye in order to activate them. Right. That may be how, the, and the, when they look at you through their eye socket, then they see things about you, and you see something as well, because the Minnesota Iceman, what what gets you is not always necessarily just being torn limb for limb by their crazy homopankoides arms, but seeing... Uh, the the sort of the fundamental untruth of, of reality as you as you gaze into them that's sort of a esoterist outcome and so you become uh, sort of frozen and uh, you no longer have free will you're you're trapped in the ice of contingency or the uh, you could go in one morning and there the uh, the ice has been uh, ripped away and the uh, figure is gone and uh, then the murder starts so uh, is it a group of ritualists who have uh, stolen the latex figure in order to use it as a, a locus of uh, uh, disruption and chaos magic, or in fact, 
is it now a homunculus that has uh, come to life and uh, is going around killing people even though it is uh, made of rubber, possibly uh, in a uh, Hollywood effects shop in the late 60s? Yes. Um, and uh, again, if you, there's a Hollywood effects shop that is building Minnesota Icemen, what else are they building? And who are they building them for? So many possible questions, all of them <laughs> all of them answered um, uh, in a mumbling lie by the docent at the Museum of the Weird, and well done. Well, in that case, I think uh, we've given you all sorts of ideas to put a Minnesota Iceman, or perhaps a Fiji Mermaid, or even both, into your campaign, and it's time to move to our final segment. The whirring of chronotons and the clacking of time gears tell us that we're once more in proximity to Ken's Time Machine, the vehicle that Time Incorporated puts Ken in to send him back in time to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes just even mutilate the time stream. And keeping with our Texas theme, uh, as Ken alluded to earlier, we were in the Jim Bullock Museum of Texas History, which, among other things, contains a vast open plaza decorated only by a heroic bronze statue of legislator and former lieutenant governor, the late Jim Bullock, who had the idea to create this history museum, a mere steps from the state capitol building, and uh, got it named after himself with a lovely uh, statue, uh, certain uh, symmetry or Ouroboros quality to that. Uh, but we saw all sorts of uh, Texas history, and that brought to mind the fact that almost every alternate history timeline, in addition to having dirigibles, uh, has or wants to have a free Texas. And Time Incorporated has asked Ken to put together a proposal to keep the Republic of Texas as its own country. And uh, all sorts of fictioneers want to do this, but uh, in your absolutely real existence as a chrononaut, Ken, you're going to have to bring this into existence. But why don't you start off by reminding us how the Republic of Texas in 1836 came into being. Uh, the Republic of Texas came into being uh, because uh, the settlers of Texas did not want to stay under Mexican rule. And you can argue back and forth, and Mexicans certainly do argue back and forth of why that is, if it's only because they just wanted to be keeping slaves, because Mexico had outlawed slavery some time ago and was trying to choke off the influx of slaves into Texas, or because they didn't want to be ruled by a horrible military dictator like Santa Ana, and given that the Mexicans eventually decided they didn't want to be ruled by a horrible dictator a la Santa Ana, I think it's a little stiff of them to be putting it all on the slave thing. But for whatever reason, the people of Texas decided that the government of Mexico had violated uh, either the compact that had made with them at their settlement or their rights as, as freeborn Western Hemisphericans, and therefore... Um, uh, rebelled against Mexico. Uh, Santa Ana had been putting down other rebellions against his authority elsewhere, but eventually he got around to trying to put down the rebellion in Texas. He marched his men in uh, and started slaughtering uh, ill-armed militia at various spots, killing all the prisoners at battles uh, like Goliad. And this angered the Texans. It inspired lots of other Americans to sort of swarm down in and, and join the fight, among them, of course, Davy Crockett. Uh, and they gathered at the Alamo, where they also lost to Santa Ana, but Santa Ana managed to stall his own advance by sitting in front of the Alamo for several weeks. 
And uh, the result... It, it is very attractive. It is very nice. It's a 90% scale replica that we saw at the it's, museum. It's a nice Alamo, and the 90% scale replica of the Alamo is... 90% is nice, although it's also indoors. So in a, in a lot of ways, it's better than the real Alamo. Um, but uh, he, he managed to get stalled there long enough for the Texas Army to sort of get itself somewhat organized. I mean, it's Texas organized. It wasn't ever really organized organized. <laughs> but um, uh, after slaughtering all of the defenders of the Alamo, he marched out and managed to get himself... Uh, captured at the Battle of San Jacinto. And at San Jacinto, um, the Texas uh, Republic basically got its independence, although Mexico never recognized it and therefore kept invading Texas over and over again, uh, at least at one point capturing Austin briefly, which I had not known that they had continued uh, several rounds of of that go-round. The result of this was that Texas... Uh, began looking longingly, those who had not already been looking longingly, to America as the solution that if America would annex Texas, then Mexico would stop invading them and everything could get back to normal. Oh, and also their currency would be worth something. So, right, Except America had a big uh, division right down the middle over those slaves. Exactly. Um, and the American uh, uh, Whig Party was generally opposed, not entirely opposed, which is why there became a Republican Party later, to the expansion of of slavery. And the people of the North, by and large, were opposed to getting into wars with people that you could sell things to instead. Um, This was a quaint previous time. And so the the issue sort of hung in the balance in the 1844 United States presidential election, which, as you have intimated, Robin, is where I am going to change history and prevent Texas from being annexed by dint of either getting Martin Van Buren uh, nominated in 1844 for the Democratic uh, position, or conversely, uh, John C. Calhoun nominated. And why, do you, uh, why you may ask, am I picking either the most northerner and anti-annexation Democrat or the most southern and pro-annexation Democrat is because if Van Buren is the nominee, then the election is between Van Buren and Clay, Henry Clay being the Whig candidate was also against Texas annexation, but um, being Henry Clay was willing to talk about it forever. Uh, And so uh, if Van Buren wins, then there's no annexation. If Clay wins, there's no annexation. If Calhoun is the nominee, then he is going to be too radical for northern states that voted for, in in our history, that that voted for James K. Polk. Uh, So northern states like New York, um, uh, New Hampshire, uh, Illinois are not necessarily going to vote for um, a crazy man like John C. Calhoun, who had nearly destroyed the Union in 1833 previously. Uh, and I think that if you get a either a, a really radical Southern Democrat or you get a uh, compromising Northern Democrat as the nominee, you wind up with, um, uh, with no Texas annexation. And Texas realizes that they're on their own for another four years at least, possibly another eight years, if Henry Clay, you know, stays on uh, as, as president. And being Henry Clay, one assumes that he would have stayed on at least for a, a good while because the people coming up in 1848 were not covering themselves with glory either. So they would have basically been forced to stop looking for someone else to save them and start working on their advantages, which were immense amounts of good agricultural land that they could sell to European or American immigrants. Um, a, to grow their turnips on. A, a hugely unstable uh, Mexico in which they could foment rebellion against Santa Ana and his rule. Uh, even in the actual uh, history of Texas, there were rebellions in um, uh, the, the provinces immediately south in Coahuila. There was a, a rebellious uh, 
group in Yucatan that actually managed to take over Yucatan and run it for about five years. And during the American-Mexican War, tried to get America to annex it so that it wouldn't have to go back to Mexico and, and get uh, punished for having rebelled. Uh, so there was a lot of possibilities that uh, Texas could have could have used in a uh, seemingly one-sided war against Mexico. And then there was the fact that Santa Ana turned out not to be very good at fighting Texans uh, in the final analysis. And so since he would have kept leading the invasion, it's not at all impossible that they would have just keep kept beating him in the way that they did, which is draw him deep into Texas away from his uh, supply train and then you know, ambush him in the cane breaks or whatever. Uh, it's not like Texas has got a shortage of terrible places to be ambushed. Now, um, one of the uh, stress lines that led uh, Texans to seek annexation, and even the people who originally opposed it basically threw in the towel and said this is our only way to go is to become an American state, is there was a big sort of uh, fiscal problem. There are two main figures who at different points were uh, president of uh, the Republic. There was Sam Houston, who we all know from uh, Frey's Fable and the name of the city. Uh, and uh, he was the uh, guy who was uh, uh, advocating uh, fiscal care and uh, flinty conservatism. And then there was a guy named Mirabeau Lamar, who figured the way to have a state was to spend uh, his way into that by uh, having a full infrastructure. So how do you uh, resolve their uh, their debt and the need to sort of quickly ramp up and become an independent nation, how much more expensive that is to maintain a free republic. Well, there's, um, like I say, they have a, a ton of land. They have a lot of land in Texas, and they had even more then, because they could be, you know, in theory, selling, you know, land grants all the way up to um, uh, the, uh, the Nebraska panhandle. Uh, as part of the Texas Territory. So they have uh, huge areas that if they can get immigration, they can turn that into, into money. They can use it, in, in, in the worst-case scenario, to raise capital on foreign uh, American and, and British stock market. The British actually have a, a very uh, unvested interest in keeping Texas independent because they are interested in weakening America so it doesn't take Oregon away from them, which, of course, James K. Polk is going to. So the... Uh, and not uh, slow, either. Um, and, and so the, uh, the... The British support for the Republic of Texas was conditional because they didn't want to anger Mexico. But at some point, if the British see that Texas is going to be around for a while, and Mexico is you know, being the sort of bad uh, marketplace that a place run by Santa Ana is they're going to maybe say it's worth the candle to invest in Texas and bankroll it and make it a British uh, economic client state the way that Argentina became a British economic client state in about the same period. And so if Britain comes in and funds your railroad, for example, on the one hand, you're dancing to the tune of the Bank of London, but on the other hand, you got a railroad, so that's pretty nice. Uh, so that's the sort of decision that a lot of uh, small countries in this hemisphere had to make uh, one way or the other, and I think the British once they sort of um, got their head around the fact that Mexico was, was a lost cause, or at least a temporarily lost cause, might be uh, might have been willing to, to provide some capital. Uh, there was a guy named James Grant, who was a Scotsman, uh, a Scots, uh, I think he was a doctor, who was sort of a big figure in Texas independence and tried to conquer Matamoros for Texas and got himself uh, killed by Mexican cavalry while doing so. The book that I bought in the Bob Bullock State Historical Museum gift shop is called The Secret War for Texas. It's written by the, uh, I think, University of Texas A&M Press, or published by them, and it argues that 
Grant was actually an agent of the British government whose job was to create a counterweight in Texas to the United States. So if Grant survives that ambush, there's a possible, uh, if this research is correct, which of course it may or may not be, um, there's a possibility that there is going to be someone on the ground who's agitating for British support for the Republic. So they have, they have, I mean, the way that the United States did it is they sold land in the Northwest, uh, and used that to capitalize, uh, uh, sort of turning over their debt. Texas could do that, or if they, they need stuff in the short term, uh, the British are always sitting by with gunboats and, and gold waiting to interfere in, um, uh, North America as they have been. Now, when uh, people uh, like to imagine a free Texas, they do not imagine necessarily a free Texas that, uh, spent its developmental years as a British client. Uh, so in our future timeline that you're about to create by going back and freeing Texas, uh, how does that change our presence? What is an ang anglicized Texas like today? Well, it's not anglicized because remember, I mean, Argentina was a British client and there's no British evidence. Uh, there's no British uh, culture, particularly in Argentina. If Argentina has any outside culture, there's Welsh culture in Patagonia because there was many, many, many Welsh immigrants there. And again, if they can go to Texas for the same price as going to Argentina, to Patagonia, um, there are there are certainly people who would say it's six of one half dozen of the other, but I don't think it's me or most Welshmen would say that. Um, and then there's a, a large German influence in Argentina because it was a, a destiny, a destination spot for German immigration well before 1945. Uh, just again, like Texas was. So culturally, Texas will not be super different. What's going to be different is the geopolitics of Texas, and the question there is at what point does some Texas president feel like they can feel their oats and tell the British to go get stuffed. That might be, for example, after Texas conquers California from Mexico, strikes gold at Sutter's Mill and says, oh, look at that. Now we don't need British gold anymore. We have all the gold. Uh, because remember, Sutter's Mill, uh, the gold in California at that time was about 40% of the gold in circulation in the world. So if Texas takes California, suddenly they're just like Texas, only more so because they believe that God actually gave them 40% of the gold in the world just to annoy everyone around them. <laughs> so uh, today, what is, uh, what is free Texas uh, like and how does it change the world? Well, um, super strong free Texas, your, your plus California version of free Texas, is like, uh, it, it's like America in a lot of ways. It's, um, uh, it, it does not have the international throw weight that America does. America, ironically, still has much of the international throw weight that it does, assuming it survives the Civil War. And that, I think, is the sort of the, the big question is, does Texas intervene in the U.S. Civil War? Because that's the point at which it could all come crashing down, because after defeating the South, which the uh, North does, unless you really believe that Texas is able to break the blockade, for example, by building a, a, a super powerful steam navy or something, um, the North is still going to win, and then the North is going to be really mad at Texas, and they're going to conquer it. And they're sitting on all that tasty gold. They're sitting on all that tasty gold, and the North just happens to have the largest, most powerful, and capable military uh, arm in the world. So you can play a civil war in which Texas is the crucial element that lets the Confederacy remain independent, and at that point, you have an angry union that hates both of them, and you probably have a lot of uh, revenge fighting over Oklahoma back and forth for the next little while. So this might be the, like the Library of Alexandria, where yeah. saving it once still means you have to keep going back at different points. And, and saving it over and over it. again. I, I think that if, you, uh, if I'm trying to 
maximize Texas independence in the literal sense of the term, keeping it out of the Civil War, despite all uh, the amazing amount of temptation. And I'm going to have to drink a lot of Texans under the table, I suspect, to do that, because there's nothing Texans love better than going getting in someone else's fight, uh, especially if it's next door and about an issue that to the Texans is, is a core ideological issue like slavery. Um, you're, you're going to wind up with a, with a lot of, um, uh, with a lot of temptation of them to, to, to horn in on that. But uh, my, my favorite quote uh, from the, the walls of the museum, uh, we're referring to the extent to which, uh, I think like two thirds of uh, all Texans who enlisted in the civil war enlisted in cavalry. <laughs> yes, right. And the explanation for that was that no Texan will walk a yard if he can help it, <laughs> which is still true today. Um, so that the, the, uh, the, the, the possibilities of, of keeping Texas literally independent um, are going to involve keeping it distracted in Mexico, I suspect. So you're going to wind up with a Texas-Mexico border that is probably about a third of the way down uh, the current peninsula and maybe also includes Yucatan, because that's going to be the way to keep them out of the Civil War is that they keep having to fight wars in Mexico. Um, but what they're going to wind up being is a large English-speaking country uh, with a large Spanish-speaking population that will probably have wound up being as about as well assimilated as, say, French Canada was prior to the um, uh, the last round of of talks. I, I, I suspect there's still going to be a, a good deal of of resentment. Certainly, the the rump Mexico is not going to take that lying down. There's going to be an ongoing uh, crisis situation, which will prevent Texas from, say, intervening in World War II or something. But will give Texas plenty of goal to dig out its new uranium in uh, New Mexico or build a very powerful coastal navy and generally be a, a major regional player. One certainly hopes that, like uh, Cuba and Brazil eventually did, Texas winds up abolishing slavery by manumission and, um, uh, and, and bounties to the, to the slaveholders. But uh, one is not sanguine about Texans giving up anything just because it's stupid and no one does it anymore. <laughs> Uh, well, on that note, we could continue uh, following this up through the timeline with all of its implications in America without Sam Rayburn or LBJ or uh, uh, some of the Bushes. Um, <laughs> well, the but, Bushes, uh, I think, stay. They, they, they stay. I think the Bushes stay in uh, New England, or they go to Oregon and become right. uh, lumber billionaires, right? Or, or uh, hydroelectric power billionaires like Henry Kaiser. There's lots of uh, uh, brush for W to, to clear wherever he uh, settles well, down. I just like the idea of, of W being a um, uh, a plain spoken uh, Pacific Coast uh, Yankee liberal. I, I think that. <laughs> The possibility of, of him becoming a Democratic president and, and having all manner of hilarious Democratic adventures is a possibility for the, the Texas world as uh, well. well. I'd love to explore that, but this segment is becoming about the size of Texas. The size of Texas. So, so it's time to, uh, with California added too, so it's time to... Like uh, Texas, we can split it into five segments. Exactly. <laughs> so I think it's time to uh, bid farewell both to this segment and to this episode. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Destiny Quest. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Keep our freezers on by hitting the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Join such patrons as Simon Hedge. And Andrew Miller. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or high-tech lair by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>